invite you to take a Bible and turn about halfway through the New Testament to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. If you're not familiar with that portion of the Bible, you come to Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And Colossians has four brief chapters, and we're continuing what I began last week with Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. As a very young Christian, as a senior in high school, I think my youth director introduced me to this chapter. I, I, I can't exactly remember how, but I have been asked to speak at the commencement of Reform Seminary in Atlanta in a few weeks, and I'm going to speak from verses 12 and following, which comes after these. Uh, we'll just look at verses 5 and following today. But as a high school senior, I had written verses 12 through 17 on a sheet of paper about that size. And I had put it, taped it to the back of my locker where in between classes I would, I would go back and I would read it and try to get my mind on the things of God. And the day came that my high school burned, big time burned. I mean, it was, a, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon and I was at a gas station. Somebody said, have you heard that Gadsden High School was on fire? Four o'clock in the afternoon. We had had fire drills since kindergarten all down the drain. Because <laughs> school wasn't in session, so we didn't get to use the fire drills. But the school burned, and a few days later we were allowed to go back in and clear out our lockers amidst all the debris and the walls that were standing. And I opened up that locker, and I could see the charred, page with Colossians 3, 12 to 17 on it. I still think about it. Uh, so I, I've spent my, for the past uh, 40 years, since 1972, I've spent thinking about this chapter of scripture, and I find something new every time I look at it. Beginning in verse 1, it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So ends the reading of God's Word. In life, sequence is extremely important. That we need, if we're going to take something apart or put something together, there's a sequence to follow. If you're going to prepare a meal, if you're going to bake a cake, you need to follow a proper sequence or all your effort literally can be in vain. In walking with Christ, here in chapter 3 of Colossians, we are dealing with a sequence and verses 1 to 4 are of great importance, and that's why I devoted the entire sermon last week to those four verses, because they lay the groundwork 
for now some negative commands and some positive commands. If you and I just try to walk with Christ beginning in verse 5 by putting to death certain things and then in verse 12 putting on certain characteristics without the sequence of understanding and applying verses 1 to 4, you will only end up with a set of rules where you will wrongly think, oh, to be a Christian means that I don't do this, but I do these things. No, to be a Christian is to be in Christ, and that's what verses 1 to 4 speak of. So if you were not here last week, I hope that you will listen to that if you are motivated to understand and apply this passage to your life. It's free. Go to iTunes. It won't cost you anything. Look again, though. I'm going to give a quick review of verses 1 to 4. It tells us who we are in Christ. If you put your faith in Christ, then verse 1 says you have been raised with Christ. When you trusted Jesus as your Redeemer, you came into union with Him. And that means you were buried with Him, you were raised with Him through your faith by the power of God who raised Him from the dead. It says in verse 1 also you were raised with Christ. And it tells us where He is. If we are with Him, where is He? He is at the right hand of God. The right hand was the place of honor and affection and esteem. If we have died with Christ and then been raised with him, we are seated with him at the right hand of God. And so the Apostle Paul here in these verses is saying that all those privileges and honors and affection that are his are bestowed on us as well if we are in him. Note also what it says about Jesus, that he is seated at the right hand of God. And I tried to show you that that is explained in the book of Hebrews. That's priestly language. In the old temple, the priest would stand and make sacrifices for his own and the sins of God's people over and over. He'd do it continually. But the book of Hebrews chapter 10, speaking of Jesus as our priest, says, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus sit down? Because the work of sacrifice for sin was over. And now if our trust is in him, we can sit down. We can rest in the goodness of God and the grace of God because the final sacrifice has been made once for all. Then verse 3 says, we have died. In what sense have we have died? we very much alive if you look around. Well, in the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. And then it says in verse 4 that we will appear with him in glory. That Jesus is coming back, and when he appears, we will appear with him. So what should be our response to these truths? I mentioned to you from verse 1, we're told, set your mind on these things. Reflect on it. Let it control your thinking. Verse 2, put it in concrete. Set your mind means let it grip you, let it grab you. The sense that he has loved me so much that old things have passed away, the thought that I have passed now from death unto life. God says, believer, think on this. Dwell on this. Hell awaited you. Eternity apart from God, but God in his mercy resurrected you. He raised you. He has eternally loved you. Glory is yours because of Jesus. Now, when you understand that, then you're in a position and you have the motivation to do what begins in verse 5. We are to put certain things to death. Begin, verse 5 begins, put to death in the English Standard Version. If you have a King James, I like the word it uses, mortify. It's a word from which we get mortician. To kill, 
To put to death, that's what mortify means. What are we to kill? Well, not, not other people, not, not ourselves. What we are to kill is anything in our lives that inhibits full devotion to Christ. We are to put it to death. It is a resolute term. It is a final term. It is decisive. Kill it. I was watching a, one of the news entertainment shows like 2020 one night, and there was a, a segment on pit bulldogs. And this is when there had been a variety of children, especially hurt by pit, pit bulls or killed around the country. And they were interviewing a man who was an expert on dogs and especially on pit bulls. And he, he was compassionate toward animals. He, he liked the animals, but he knows the nature. And so finally the interviewer, toward the end, after they'd shown some amazing video of these animals, a pit bull literally like climbing up a tree to get a piece of meat that looked like it was 15 feet off the ground. It was remarkable. You almost couldn't believe it when you saw it. And the man said, well, what, if I'm ever attacked by a pit bull, what should I do? I guess he was expecting an answer like, well, uh, grab this part of his body or, or do this. He said, he just looked and he said, kill the dog. He said, no, really, what should I? He said, kill the dog. That's your only choice. Here Paul is saying there's certain things that you and I are exposed to and come from our own hearts, and the only response we've got as believers is kill them, put them to death. Well, what are these things? He gives a list. It's not complete, but it is somewhat general. First, he says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amount or which is idolatry. Now, these words, the term sexual immorality, they're all re referring to sexual temptation that's of a sinful nature. The first word, immorality, is rather general. From that word, we get our English word pornography or pornographic. It means every kind of immoral sexual relation. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul's call was radical in the pagan culture. It was as radical then, if not more so, than it is today. The Roman culture of the first century was saturated with sexual immorality. If we think we are saturated with immorality as we are and sexual temptation all around us, at least so far we've not arrived at the point to where we have temples in various cities that are, that are uh, staffed by prostitutes where if we want to go and worship at night, men, you know, go off to the prayer meeting, what you would do is go be with a prostitute and that was your form of worship. Now things are bad in America, but they aren't there Yet, Give it time, it might happen, but that's what, that was the culture of that day, uh, what was accepted. And there's nothing as far as uh, perverse sexual behavior, we don't have anything on the Romans uh, with what was going on. So it was radical then, it's radical now. He goes on, he uses the word impurity, that's a broader term, that includes any kind of sensual imagination, speech, sensual speech, Deeds of the heart or mind. Because where does, where does uh, sexual sinful behavior begin? It begins right here with thoughts. There was a Puritan preacher. The Puritans were tremendous at applying Scripture to the practical areas of life. And one of his parishioners in the church came to him. This man said, he referred to the temptations he had, and especially sexual temptations. He said, they're like cobwebs. They're cobwebs all in my life. And the pastor looked at him and said, kill the spider. You need to kill the spider before it builds the cobwebs. 
Then it goes and uses the word lust. He continues and says not only uh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, or passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I think, I think the Apostle Paul, in addressing first these areas as he's telling these Christians in the city of Colossae how to deal battle with, with, with uh, temptation, I think he began with probably what was the most pressing area for them, uh, sexual immorality. And I, I want to I give you, assuming that is true probably in our congregation too, or definitely across churches in America, if not the world, let me give you some statistics about pornography in the church. Um, the statistics are almost overwhelming, and you can check this from many sources. But if we, First Presbyterian Church, and my guess would be there might be three, 275, 300 people in here today, if we are an accurate reflection of mainline church statistics in America, then 30% of the women are addicted to pornography. And anywhere from 70 to 80% of the men say they look at it at least once a month. Now that's why Chuck Swindoll, uh, a pa very seasoned pastor of local churches, that's one of the things I appreciate him, he's always pastored a local church, he says... Pornography is the number one secret problem in our churches. It is ruining marriages. It is destroying relationships. It is harming youth. It is hurting the body of Christ. He says our churches are in trouble, and this is no time simply to wait and pray. Now, I looked up some other statistics, and these are, these are, not, uh, these are more true of the culture, but probably have application in the church. The average age in the United States of a child's first exposure to pornography is 11. It's 11 years old. And between the ages of 8 and 16 in the United States, 8 to 16, 90%, 90% of the youth have viewed pornography online and most accessed it, accessed it when they were doing their homework. 90%. The thing about it is it hides behind a curtain of anonymity and secretiveness. But the destruction comes out all around. Many of us here had absentee fathers, whether they were working all the time or whether we came from broken homes. One in five of us were sexually abused, if we hold true to national church statistics. Now, I look at this... And when I see the Apostle Paul dealing with these kind of things right up front with applying our position in Christ, I think that's probably accurate even today in the list of priority. But note this. He uses at the end two words. He, in summarizing, he says it's greed and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why would he call these things idolatry? You know, I don't think of sexual sin as idol worship, See, whatever you put your trust in, that's what you worship. When you and I sin, we are choosing to do something that we desire to do rather than what God desires. And that, in essence, is what worship is. And we are choosing to worship ourselves or something we do rather than God. Therefore, it is idolatry. So when Paul says it, sexual 
immorality, impurity, etc. He's saying when you want something that God does not want you to have, it means you want it anyway. It means you love that more than you love God, and therefore it is idolatry. So how do we kill it? How do we kill it? I can tell you as a pastor, uh, I am in no way intend to sound condemning and harsh. I look at why are we so weak? Seriously. Why is it that for many, sexual sins are like they get them in a vice grip? People who know clear theology, that have clear professions of faith in Christ, but they get entangled in things they just can't seem It's like, where is the victory? Where is the breaking of these things that seem to control and destroy so many lives? I think we're going to find help here. So cheer up. Things are going to get better here as we look at the verses. How do we kill it? How do we do what we're being told to do? Well, I want to let you know there is power in the fight itself. There is power in the fight against the temptation itself. Keep fighting And so this initial command of put to death is not a one-time thing. Uh, It's not do it today on whatever date, May the 6th, and you'll never have to deal with it again. No, it's continually. You will have to continually put to death. So Paul knows if you drop your guard, if you do not fight, then you've already lost the battle. John Owen was a tremendous Christian thinker. We owe much to John Owen, though most of us here probably have never heard of him. Had a roommate in college that owned the whole collection of his works. I think on a bookshelf, it was about that long. Volume 6 of the volumes was that thick, and the the main theme of Volume 6 of John Owen's works is called The Mortification of Sin. It's basically a whole theology of Colossians 3, 5. What does it mean to put sin to death? And there... He said much in that volume. I'm not read at all. But he did note that there are two times when Christians think they will no longer have to fight. In other words, that the fight is not ongoing. He says there are two occasions or two times when we think we no longer have to fight. The first, he said, is when we have indulged in sin. We have given in to a temptation. He says the person gives in to the temptation, and because they have indulged, the temptation no longer seems attractive. And the behavior thinks, well, now I have victory. And John Owen says the victory will grow old and the temptation will return. The other occasion, he said, when the Christian mistakenly thinks he will no longer have to fight and can drop his guard, is when God has rescued him from some great crisis. During the crisis, perhaps you made a vow to God and said, Oh, Lord, if you will deliver me, then I will no longer do this. God rescues John Owen says the crisis will grow old and the sin will renew. His point was, you and I must be vigilant. It is an ongoing process until Christ comes again or we die first. Then the Apostle Paul gives some reasons why we should put sin to death. In verse 6 he says, we should remind ourselves that on account of these things, that these things are the list he's just given, sexual immorality, impurity, and so forth, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And he speaks in such an emphatic way as though it's already arrived, as though it's already here. 
And he's referring to the day of judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, why is this mentioned here in this passage? He's talking about people who've been raised with Christ. Then he gets into this list of putting to death. Why bring up the wrath of God? Well, one is to see the seriousness of the sin that God's wrath will be poured out on, but also, as John Calvin said, that we may be deterred from sinning, that you and I as believers may pause and say, you know, this is very, very serious. There are consequences to actions. And I would just say this. I, I hope you've been here long enough that I, I try to preach often, or at least include, assurance of salvation. We should, if you belong to Christ, you should know you belong to Christ. And we've talked about the book of 1 John and the promises of God and the changed life and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. But when you really read in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6 and other places, if you and I are habitually living in sexual disobedience to God, habitually, we don't have a ground for assurance at that point. Are you saying I've lost my salvationship? No, not saying that at all. I'm just saying if those are the choices you're making to where that pretty much depicts your lifestyle, I, as, a, as a, a believer, I would say you, you, don't have a strong, you don't have a strong foundation to stand on to be certain you're a Christian. What? I was talking with a father one day about his teenage son, and he had let me know that his teenage son was regularly having sexual intercourse with his girlfriend who was about 15 years old. And as we were talking, I said, are you concerned about him? He said, yeah, I've told him he better be careful. He can end up in jail. I said, are you, I said no, are you concerned about his soul? And he quickly almost cut me off said, oh, he's a believer. He's a believer. He was offended I even raised a question. And I said, well, what do you do about 1 Corinthians 6? It says if we practice such things, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. The conversation came to an end at that point. I take the father's reflective of our southern culture. Well, I'm a Christian. God isn't telling me what to do. What are you talking about, Chip? I'm saved. Once saved, always saved, right? Law, grace, just all grace. I can do what I want to do. I'm just trying to say, you look at this, and we're warned here about the wrath of God. And Calvin said that we may be deterred from sinning. The reality of the coming wrath of God is to deter us. There are consequences to actions. There will be a payday. Sin is part of the believer's past. So what is Paul saying? He's saying you're new creatures. You are new creatures if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been seated with him, then set your mind on the things above. That's where you are. You're seated with him up there, not living in filth down here. That should not characterize your life because that's not who you are. Now, briefly... How am I doing? I've got about five, six more minutes. Verse 8 and following, I'm not going there much. He deals with anger and malice and some other things. And we're to kill those two. But I want to speak to you now, hopefully pastorally and practically, about how do we, how do we fight the temptation? How do we put it to death? The way you're going to fight is by faith itself. Faith is your main tool in spiritual warfare. Now, there are other weapons, as you know. But Paul is saying, you are not dead anymore to the power of sin. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead 
is the power that changes you and me, the Holy Spirit. I think we often fail to recognize that. The same power that took a dead corpse in that tomb outside of Jerusalem on that first Easter morning, blew the stone away, raised him from the dead, that same power is the same power at work in your life, Christian, to sanctify you. It is not just all your efforts. It is not, well, I've got to put sin to death by pulling myself up by my bootstraps. The first thing to recognize is that you have power to fight that is supernatural in and of itself because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Satan tells you, you have no power. Satan would say, you are powerless against this. But God says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so you need to believe that. You need to understand it and believe it, that God has given you power to overcome sin. And there is ability to fight because of that. Regardless of your failures in the past, I can stand here and tell you right now, tomorrow does not have to look like yesterday. I don't care how old you are, and you say, well, I can't change. I've just been doing this too long. You can change because it's not your power. It's the Holy Spirit's power. Idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. And we cannot remedy, we cannot turn from sin just as a sheer act of repentance. We have to turn toward Christ and have that affection. His affection, His love for us, and our love for Him, we have to be growing in that. I forgot who wrote it, but they said, If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. So you can't leave a vacuum. We have to pursue the love of Christ. And that is one of the key weapons, is love itself. He knows we love him because he first loved us. Why does the sin appeal to you? Whatever sin or sins trip you up the most, back up and say, why does this appeal to me so much? I can tell you why. It's not a secret. Because you love it. You love it. In the moment of the sin, you love the sin more than you love the Savior. And so the way you take the power of the sin away is you take away its life source, which is your love for it. So to do this, you must know who you are. And God's love for you and that love fills you up. Then you're able to fight because of who you are, because of verses 1 to 4, that I've been raised with him, that my trust is in him, and so forth. I was talking with a man some time back, a Christian man who had lived very unchristianly in his marriage. Multiple unfaithfulness. Shocking. And I had a long time at this man's request to talk. And after he had pretty much summed up things for me and what God had been doing in his life, he had since repented and turned. And his marriage, though, still needs a lot of work, but is much more intact than it had been. I, I looked at him, I said, why did your wife not divorce you? She had every reason to from your behavior. It's hard for me to tell you this. He said, she looked at me and said, because you are, this is not the man I married. She knew this was really not him that he was behaving in a way that wasn't true to who she had married. And she was right. But you know what we do? 
what the Satan will say? Oh, this is you. This is you in the filth. That's who you really are. And God is saying in verses 1 to 4, no, you've been raised with Christ. You've been seated. With, you're at the place of honor and esteem and affection. This is who you are, not there down in the mud. This is who you are. So how do I counsel someone dealing with sexual lust, immorality, pornography, and so forth? What I want to do is take the last three or four minutes and just tell you what I would tell a person, what I have told people dealing with this. Nothing secret, nothing's going to surprise you. I've yet to meet a Christian man who does not struggle at some level with this. And sometimes just talking with another believer about it can be powerful. That in and of itself almost becomes a means of grace to help to help give power that wasn't there, just the talking about it. Confession has a wonderful side effect of revealing the truth of the issue and what should happen next. Sexual lust, as fed by pornography, is first and foremost an illusion built on lies, and lies love the darkness. They like secretiveness. But it is an illusion that can be easily broken when it's brought into the light. So what would I say? What do I say? How do I give pastoral counsel and direction to someone habitually sinning sexually? And these are not necessarily in order of importance, but I've listed about seven things. I first clarify with the person their identity in Christ. What is their understanding of the real gospel, of what Jesus did, and why we needed a Savior, and what is faith, real faith, not Mickey Mouse faith, not foxholes, there's no, you know, atheist and foxholes type faith. Real faith. What is repentance? What does it mean to turn from yourself to God? We talk about that. I remind them of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, and He indwells every believer, and His goal is to conform you and me in Christ to the image of Christ. I hope and talk to the person that they will recognize the sin for what it is. It's not an illness. It's not just a mistake. I slipped, but everybody slips. No, I want them to see the full weight of this as a violation of God's law. It's not just a wrong committed against other people. First and foremost, it's against God himself. I urge that person to flee temptation. We will analyze the occasions of when and where he or she is typically tempted. Is it in front of the television? Turn it off. Is it with a computer? You may need to fast from the Internet for six months. Is it when you're down and discouraged, when you're disappointed? Is it when you're experiencing grief? We talk about how to have a strategy to flee the occasions of temptation. I talk to them about practicing the spiritual disciplines in their life, the need to read the Bible and to pray and for corporate worship and fellowship and to use those as means to grow in love with God. Two more, three more things. I urge the person to confide in another believer. One sexual addict who now heads up a ministry said, sexual sin breeds and grows stronger in isolation. The only way to kill it is to expose it to others. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. That you may be healed. So there is power in confession. I'm not talking about becoming an open book to everybody and, you know, shocking everybody in your life. 
I'm talking about confiding in one or two other people that you respect and trust that can help you. Seven, gain knowledge and courage. I urge them to gain knowledge and courage from ministries which specialize in sexual temptation, like purelifeministries.org, blazinggrace.org. These are Christian ministries, uh, primarily online, that have been started by people that have suffered the consequences of this. Last of all, I urge them to tell, I would say, tell yourself the truth. That if you're faith in, in Christ, you belong to God. That he does provide a way of escape. That I tell myself, I am not my own, but I belong to him and he loves me. That you are his precious child. That you've been raised in Christ. That you are due to appear in glory. And for that reason, you should remember who you are. Because in the joy, that is your strength. And victory is not just possible, it is real. Because of the grace of God who has claimed you for his own, remember who you are. Draw near to him. Our hope for lasting change is found in the steadfast love of God. I've said a lot. If you don't know Jesus today as your Savior, see the pastor or an elder afterwards in the prayer room or call me. I'll be glad to meet with you and talk to you. Uh, But I would... I'll pray for you. Let's close together. Father, we thank you for your grace that covers our sins. We pray that you might help us to live each day as those recognizing who we are in Jesus. Uh, We pray for those of us here that are maybe very, very discouraged uh, with our own walk with you because of our uh, habitual sin in one area or another or many areas. We pray today that that our hearts would be soft toward you and rekindled to your grace and your mercy and and your love, and that we would desire to love you more because of how much you've loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.